Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today we're here with Jack Jennings, author of the new HEPG book, Presidents, Congress, and the Public Schools, The Politics of Education Reform. Jack, welcome to the EdCast. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate the invitation. So April of 2015 marks a pretty big anniversary for the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, otherwise known as ESEA. Um, it's the 50th anniversary, and I think in many ways most people may not know the history of the federal government's involvement in public education, and I bet you, Jack, you're probably the best person to ask that question. Well, uh, I was involved for almost the entire time period in one way or another with the federal uh, legislation. Uh, I worked for Congress for many years, and I was the head of a think tank that followed federal education programs. So I was pretty close to it for a number of years, and uh, I've watched the federal role in education develop from almost nothing to a significant uh, influence in ed education. When the federal government's influence in education, I guess you can go in many different directions with this, has been its, its most involved, but then also its most sort of... Uh, successful in its involvement. I'm curious, just in your time, um, where you've seen the bright spots and also where you've seen the, the challenges? Well, the, the federal government was involved in education from the 1700s by, in establishing uh, public schools through the admission of states, and it continued in uh, an indirect fashion to support uh, public education, both at elementary, secondary level and also at the higher education level. But in the 1960s, that changed. Uh, after the Second World War, uh, the GIs came back, and they wanted better schools for their kids. And the national government became involved, and it became involved in one particular way, which reflected the atmosphere of the times of the 60s, which was uh, an equity role, so that the federal government over these 50 years, in one way or another, has always been trying to emphasize the needs of kids who are left behind or the needs of kids that have been overlooked uh, otherwise. And so that's been the one constant theme of the federal involvement in education uh, since the 1960s to the present time. I think in your book you'd look at a lot of those um, pieces of federal legislation that have been particularly impactful in your book, Presidents, Congress, and the Public Schools. Um, talk a little bit about Title I, NCLB, some of the programs that the federal government has enacted. Well, trying to take a broad scope over those many years and all the events that happened over that time, uh, there were two major movements. One was uh, rooted in the 60s, which was an equity focus to add additional money uh, to uh, the education of disadvantaged children, whether they were uh, migrant wor farm workers' kids or whether they were poor kids or uh, whether they were kids who needed to learn English. Was, the idea was that if the federal government could provide a little extra money to help them they would do better because they would be remediated. Uh, they would be helped with extra services. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, what happened was that those programs never grew to the extent that they were intended to be uh, as they, when they were created. Uh, President Johnson in the 1960s intended for Title I to be a massive program, uh, 8 to $10 billion that would uh, overcome the inequities of state and local funding of education. Uh, and he intended on the federal government being the equalizer and trying to bring up uh, school districts so that they would all have the same amount of money spent behind kids. Well, that never happened because of the Vietnam War and because of a number of other things. So this equity role was hampered uh, because there wasn't a sufficient amount of money. 
It was also hampered because it, the equity programs are carried out in school districts uh, that are inequitably uh, structured. Uh, what happens nowadays is that it's more likely that poor kids are going to get teachers who are less experienced, uh, who have uh, fewer advanced degrees, and more affluent kids are more likely to get uh, teachers who have more degrees and they have more experience. So the uh, amount of federal money the federal government was able to provide through Title I wasn't able to make up for either the money inequities or the staffing inequities. And so it had an effect. It, it helped these kids without a doubt, but it didn't uh, counter the inequities that Johnson and the other creators in the 1960s intended. Now that evolved into No Child Left Behind because in the 1980s, uh, people became dissatisfied with federal programs. Uh, there, there was dissatisfaction with public education in general. And this evolved into uh, what's called the standards movement, where for the first time in the country, uh, the state governors uh, led the charge, of, uh, followed by President Bush, the first President Bush, and then by uh, President Clinton, uh, uh, to have the states for the first time in our history uh, establish what kids should know. Uh, we had never done that before except for New York. And so uh, this was the second movement, and that was meant to uh, have content knowledge specified and have testing requirements so that we'd know whether kids uh, had mastered that subject matter. And that was meant as an answer to improving public education, but also as an answer to making up for what was perceived as weaknesses in Title I because Title I did not have an education content component. Unfortunately, that movement was sidetracked with uh, No Child Left Behind under, under the second President Bush, and uh, No Child Left Behind turned the standards movement into a punitive movement so that teachers were uh, penalized, schools were penalized if they didn't raise test scores enough. And so what has happened in some schools, especially in the poorest schools, is that uh, whole blocks of time are set aside just to prep kids for tests and not necessarily to educate them. And uh, different subjects have been eliminated, uh, different areas of uh, physical uh, gym activities, other activities have been eliminated in order to concentrate on test uh, compliance. So we've gone uh, wrong with that movement. Uh, it, that movement did a number of good things. It has specified what kids should know, but uh, there's been too much emphasis on testing. And that's what uh, the Congress is trying to correct now, and that's what the uh, Obama administration is trying to correct now. I think Marshall Mike Smith, who's the former undersecretary of U the U.S. Department of Education, he said it best about you. No one knows more about ESEA and especially Title I than Jack Jennings. Jack, thanks uh, for that history. So let, that brings us to this point now, 2015 reauthorization. Um, people say about your book that you're presenting, quote, a bold and controversial vision for the future. Jack, tell me why they, people would describe it as bold and why is it controversial? Well, it's bold uh, in these respects. Uh, it says that uh, the idea that the federal government should be involved in daily classroom activity and trying to improve uh, teaching and learning on an average uh, in an average school on a daily basis has always been thought as being outside what the federal government should be involved in. But since the federal government tried indirect means, uh, such as providing a little extra money for equity or uh, trying to put pressure on teachers to raise test scores without uh, judging whether they knew the content. And these indirect means did not bring about major improvement. I think we should go directly to the core of education, which is teaching and learning in the classroom, uh, or ordinary kids and teachers, 
and find out whether the kids are prepared, whether teachers are the best teachers possible, whether the curriculum is demanding, whether there's enough money to pay for it. And I think we should concentrate on the very essence of education instead of trying these indirect means like charter schools and extra money and testing. These are all indirect means. They're not um, direct means of improving education for the vast bulk of children. And uh, this would be different for the federal government. Uh, what else would be different is that the, I believe the federal government shouldn't dictate this, that it should be the federal government should look at the research and identify uh, what is uh, the best ways of improving teaching and learning and then work with the states and let them decide how they're going to implement these goals. And then uh, the states should uh, fashion plans where they will implement these goals over 10 years. The federal government would monitor how they're implementing them. And then the federal government, over time, if states are successful, would double the amount of uh, federal funding for education and give it to the states as direct general aid, not as categorical or separate aid. This would be money that would go directly into a state's budget to be used for education. And so I think what would be achieved at the end is that after 10 years, uh, whatever states participate, they will not only have a better funding for education because they'll have more federal money, a stabler financial base, but that education will be better because kids will be better prepared for school, teachers will be uh, more, more of the best and brightest teachers will be in the schools, they will be better paid, and there will be a vigorous curriculum, rigorous curriculum with uh, decent funding. So it's, it's bold in that it's asking for us to learn from the past, uh, acknowledge that some things were done right in the past, but some things may have been done wrong, and let's rethink this and get to the essence of education and improve it. The name of the book, Presidents, Congress, and the Public Schools, The Politics of Education Reform. Uh, Jack, who, who should be reading this book? Who do we need to get this book in the hands of out March 2015, HEPG.org? Well, I would hope that the people in power would read it, uh, but uh, I am afraid that a number of people have taken the testing pill and are just too entranced with uh, what they think are the benefits of testing. And testing can help. It can measure whether kids have learned something, but uh, tests are very limited. Uh, they're just snapshots of what kids know. Uh, the same kid can take the same test on two different days and have a different score, even a far different score. So testing helps, but it's, it's not the answer. It's not the lever to reform. So uh, I hope that people who are currently involved in uh, setting policy will pay attention to it, the Congress, the president, governors. But uh, I really uh, am realistic and think that it's the next generation that's going to decide this. And I would hope that it's people who are uh, in college now, people who want to be teachers, people who are young teachers, that uh, they read this and they think about what the next big reform movement ought to be and I think it ought to be concentrating on getting the best teachers, the best people into the classroom, getting kids prepared for school, and teaching them a rigorous curriculum with fair funding behind it. All excellent food for thought. Jack Jennings is the founder and former CEO of the Center on Education Policy. He served for 27 years as a subcommittee staff director and then as general counsel for the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Education and Labor. His new book through Harvard Education Press is called Presidents, Congress, and the Public Schools, The Politics of Education Reform. Jack Jennings, thanks for being on the EdCast. Thank you, Matt. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening.